0: This is The Hindu On Books, a weekly podcast from India's national newspaper on the latest and the best from the world of literature. Hello and welcome to The Hindu's On Book podcast. I'm Shobhana K. Nair and with me today is Shrayana Bhattacharya, the author of Desperately Seeking Shah Rukh, India's Lonely Young Women and the Search for Intimacy and Independence. Shreya is trained in Development Economics at Delhi University and Harvard University and is currently working as an economist at the World Bank. As we sit down to discuss the book, it has already gone for a reprint less than six months after it was first published and it has grabbed three awards. I have struggled to describe your book to my friends. And I fumble about giving incoherent answers. It is about inequalities facing women in love, relationships, and the professional world. It is about the small freedoms that we are denied no matter which class we belong to. It is a conversation with kindred spirit, and ultimately, it is about the burden of being a woman. And then, my friends turn around and ask, what about Sharukha? So, welcome on board, Shayana. And let me begin by asking you this very question. I want you to clear the air in your own words. Is it or is it not about Shah Rukh Khan?
1: Well, firstly, Shobhana, thank you so much for being in conversation with me. Um It's a pleasure to be here. It's not about the celebrity or the icon of Mr. Shah Rukh Khan. Um, when I say the book is desperately seeking Sharoh, and I think you alluded to this in your introduction, he is serving two roles in the book. One is he is a research device. Uh, because as you see in the book, the reason I was able to actually sustain very difficult and complex conversations uh with women and women across class backgrounds were very different from me shobhana um is because we were united in this joint language of fandom right so when i would ask women about shahrukhs iconography they would never talk about him they would actually talk about themselves they would talk about how difficult it is to watch his films to find free time to find money to access markets And then they would talk about masculinity, right? How difficult it is to find a man who's supportive. And these idioms of a supportive man seem to draw a lot from his icon. So he's a research tool uh, which allows for me to explore women's voices and women's experiences in post-liberalization India. And the second role he plays, uh, oddly enough, is actually a way for me to explain to the reader uh, in a more accessible way, how difficult it is for a woman to exercise economic power uh, or just assert her own pleasure. And the reason that is, is as you see in the book, something as simple as just wanting to follow your favorite actor, right? To watch a song of his on a mobile phone or on the TV, uh, to put up a poster, to carry the poster uh, to your in-law's home after you've been married. These very simple pleasures and freedoms are so difficult to access for so many women. And I I wanted to use this very simple example to just, you know, shed light on how stark the crisis of gender in our economy currently is that, you know, women aren't even even able to make up uh, such a simple transaction. So I think he plays two roles uh, without the book being about him. Uh, one is the role of a research anchor, a research device. Um, and the other is the example of a transaction. And in fact, because I follow these women for 15 years, Obna, what I learned was that, you know, in the beginning in 2006, for many of the women, as they started to earn money on their own, one of the first ways they started to exercise and flex their economic muscle was to watch a Sharok film, right? You see that particularly in more precarious backgrounds. Uh, they start to organize screenings. They start to own his iconography. They have great pride and pleasure in that. And so to me, it's almost a very interesting parable for the kind of social change that can happen when women start to exercise economic power and assert and seek their own pleasure. So that's the role he plays. Um, and then, you know, it's just heaps of fun. It's a relief uh, as we talk about very complex issues.
0: Right in this context, I want to tell me, uh, how come you are a trained economist and this book largely deals with gender economics, but how did you resist the temptation of steering clear from the jargon or writing a deep academic book? And was it a conscious effort to construct it as a conversation?
1: Yes. Uh, Shobhana, you know, in fact, originally it was going to be a very academic book. Um, in 2006, so between 2006 to around 2011, I had followed a subset of women and I had thought I would write largely, in fact, about the women in Uttar Pradesh who I encountered. And it would be a very fairly um, academic way of writing, you know, steeped in theory and, you know, written in a certain form. Uh, but I think in sometime around 2012, I myself was going through a very rough time in my personal life, and I'm very transparent about it in the book. And I realized at that time that what I really wanted to read as just a reader myself was writing that, of course, explained using the language of social science why structures of society and our institutional structures, be it the economy, the family, markets, were making me feel quite miserable, you know, in the, in the arena of romance and also in the arena of self-esteem. But I also wanted it to be presented to me in an accessible form, which actually offered comfort. So I was reading a lot of writers, you know, be it Kamala Das, uh, be it Manju Kapoor, uh, you know, or even in non-fiction people like Emily Witt and uh, Vivian Gornick. And I always felt that these women spoke to me in a very deep, visceral way. And yet they were also doing, they were practicing social science in, you know, if you read these books very seriously. And I, I felt that as a political commitment almost to my own heartbreak um, and to myself. I wanted to sort of write it in a very different way. So it was a very, it was an organized effort. In fact, so I went back to scratch Sobna, and I completely changed the way uh, the book was, the tone, the texture, the tenor of the book, which was very
0: hard to do. Uh, if I may ask, I think 2006 onwards you started you had the idea in your early 20s that you want to write this book and then in 2013 you go back to the draft and you rewrite it completely.
1: Yes, you're absolutely right and Shobana, the other thing I did in 2013 which I outline in the book is I decided to open up the class backgrounds of the women I was writing about. I no longer wanted to write it as like a elite woman social scientists writing about women from precarious backgrounds I wanted to include women from my own class background as well as well as the middle class um, so at that point in fact I solicited additional interviews with women who were you know upper caste fairly privileged English speaking as you see in the book because I felt that there was just thinking about my own experiences looking at the lives of my very dear women friends I just felt that there was something uniting, in fact, the conversations I was hearing from women who were, you know, living in slums, working as domestic workers or making agarbattis and garments and people like me. And what was uniting us, despite the fact that we had so much economic privilege, more economic privilege than these other women, was actually the sense of loneliness and a sense of not being supported in one's ambitions as one tries to sort of try and stand on their own two feet. And I felt that I really wanted to open it up. And because, you know, Mr. Khan is also always talked about as a fairly elite, bane, you know, NRI hero, I really wanted to dismantle sort of, you know, using this research tool. How is it that he can actually connect the voices of women from very different class circumstances? So I decided, yes, Shobana to go back to scratch. Um, and then I decided also to take on the burden of interviewing additional women. Uh, who are much more from my own class profile. So there are women like Vidya in the book, and there are several others who show up who come from very different circumstances. So it became almost like a cross-class book. And the other thing then it allowed me to do, which was of course madness. I mean, now that I think about it, is then I was actually able to follow some of the women I knew right from 2006 all the way up till 2019, uh, because I just kept continuing. Right, I kept redrafting. So this has really been a long drawn out process I won't at all uh, recommend it to anyone I mean it's been difficult but I'm glad because I think it forced me to write and attack the material in a very I think in a much more nuanced way because time allows you to do that right if you look at the same interview when I was 26 versus when I'm 36 you do see it very differently and you're able to sort of bring to bear your own experience into that um, and I'm glad I waited so it is very much an ode to slow literature
0: didn't you have self-doubt working for 15 years on one project for uh, your parents, questioning what the hell are you to?" for your friends? Take me through that.
1: Yeah, no. So Shobna, the funniest thing I have to tell you. So I, you know, my day job is one of a technocrat, right? So I work with uh, people who are very bottom line oriented, are very rational. Mostly they're all economists. And I, you know, I remember I I have some mentors, you know, who are very close to me. Some of them have loved the book. And, you know, they would ask me, they said, are you sure? I mean, what are you, you know, they were completely confused. They couldn't understand what I was doing. But at the same time, I think with that doubt, because I, of course, had doubt as well. I really did rely on a network of feminist economists, a lot of scholars who work on gender. The women I was interviewing myself uh, many of the activists who I've interviewed in the book, they were all such source of support, encouragement. Um I, I think, you know, when they would question me or when they would push me, it only made the text better. Um And I knew that this book was always going to be longitudinal. What I did not know, Shobhana, when I started in 2006, I thought it would end in 2011. I did not realize that it would end in 2019. But... I somehow felt that it was the right decision to make. And I really did rely on a lot of people who, you know, supported the project, be it my editor, be it, as I said, you know, economists who I used to talk about the material with. Um, You know, for the book, I had to seek permission, right? Uh, because many of the research projects follow certain ethical norms about protecting the people who you're talking to. And there were other scholars who were involved in that process. And they were nothing but, you know, their doubt was encouraging as well. And their support was encouraging as well, if you know what I mean. So it was both. So it really pushed me in a funny way, shobhna I actually always say now, you know, many people ask me, are you going to do a PhD? Will you ever finish it? I doubt I will. But strangely, I actually think this book was my informal PhD. And I did have an informal PhD committee helping me out. So I think I did have self doubt, but I really relied on other people. And I think the book is very much a product of the generosity of so many, you know, who sort of helped me along. And the last thing I will say on this show which is that, you know, I was also very tired of the way I felt a certain kind of social science, particularly when it comes to women and the economy is written. It's written in a very stuffy way. It's a very exclusive conversation, which I, I sometimes feel almost takes pride in, like, not engaging and involving more people, if you know what I mean. And I was very motivated with my anger and general frustration with that kind of writing. So I think as a political project for me as well, I just really wanted to dismantle all the rules. I didn't want to play by any of the rules uh, of how that kind of writing is done. And I was very committed to that. So that really kept me going, even through all the doubt and all the questions that I had in my mind. So, uh,
0: as I said right in the beginning, your book is also about how women are denied small freedoms Um, while going through all your interviews can you recall for our listeners uh, what were these small what are these small freedoms that are denied no matter which class you belong to yeah you know Shobhana it's something that actually makes me
1: really upset me actually during the time that I was doing the research and even as I think about it So let's take, for example, in the book, there's a character who calls herself the accountant. She's a, you know, fairly privileged woman, the first generation of the middle class, right? After economic reforms, works in the Delhi government, has a fairly prestigious job as a junior accounts officer. And, you know, when she's growing up, she can't even keep the money that she earns from, you know, teaching kids how to do math homework as a tutor on her own. Uh, because her family believes that, you know, money should be given to like the elders and not for her own pleasure. And she actually, she, her mother and her father berate her to the point that it reaches violent moments when she goes to watch a film on her own and they see that she's just coming back from watching a film with her friends. Something as simple as that. And, and in her story, you see how regulated her life is because her father keeps coming into her room to check what she's posting in a scrapbook. You know, she maintains a Shah Rukh scrapbook, which has all his quotes and notes. And she like cuts out pictures and things that she puts in. Because for her, actually, Shah Rukh is not an actor. I think for her, Shah Rukh is her self-help guru. And she's sort of creating her own self-help book, uh, stitching together all these bits of his iconography. And her father is petrified of this. I think he's petrified because it signals her sexuality, it signals her economic interests, it signals the fact that she doesn't want to just get married within her caste and just become a mother. She's not interested in that. She wants to do something else with her life, and I think it really frightens them. So that's one example. And then if we really, you know, sort of follow the chain down to India's economic precariat, there's a young woman who calls herself Manju in the book, and I won't give away, I think shobhna you know why she's called Manju. There's a reason, and it's a very powerful story, I feel. A young Muslim woman who makes embroidery at home in a village in Rampur, in Uttar Pradesh. And in her case, her uh, parents will not let her watch a Shah Rukh film in a cinema hall. Her brothers won't go with her, so as a consequence, she can't watch a film she really wants to. She wants to watch Veer Zara and no one will allow her to do it. No one will take her. People are willing to go for a Sunny Deol film or a Ajay Devgan film or a Salman film. But because she can't go to the cinema hall on her own, because it's seen as an unsafe space, Uh, we should remember 6 out of 10 people in a cinema hall are men in India as per the latest data. She can't go on her own. She doesn't have money to travel on her own. She feels unsafe going on her own and she would feel guilty as well, Right. And so all of that finally means she can't just do something as simple as watch a film in a cinema hall. And so she starts organizing screenings eventually on her own. And in fact, when she's married, as I mentioned at the beginning, her parents will not even allow her to take her Shah Rukh stash. You know, she has these posters and pictures and some audio cassettes. That's not allowed. She sends some of them to me and eventually I return them to her. And I'm happy to report they're very much with her. But the thing that is actually the most important Shobhana in this, in fact, the Manju story, and I I suspect this is true for a lot of women, is that eventually when I wrote about her, Shobhana, it was not her who gave me permission. She was okay with it. She'd seen, you know, she'd heard from me how I wanted to write it. She doesn't read English. I had tried to translate it. I'd shared it with her husband and with her and her brothers. It was actually her in-law's. And I write about this, that that permission, right, to tell her story didn't even lie with her. It was with her in-laws, uh, which I think is a very powerful telling of who is allowed to speak their own truth in our country and who really owns their own stories. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, I think you're right in saying that the book does. It's a compilation of how women struggle, I think, even if they're not outwardly denied, but I think women struggle to claim small freedoms. And I think the book is, over the 15 years, you see all these different women are becoming more and more comfortable, particularly as they're stepping out of the home, as they're earning their own money, as they're asserting their own economic space. They are all becoming much more vociferous in claiming these small freedoms. And I think you see a shift in almost each one, you know, their lives are in a very different equilibrium, the 15 years that I've known them. And I think it is about being strong enough and feeling comfortable enough in your own skin to claim these freedoms, uh, which are so often denied to all of us.
0: Uh, You know, what I found really interesting is, as you write uh, yourself, your book is about women and their journey from economic liberalization to economic lockdown. Now, I'm curious, why did you pick the 1990s as the starting point? And without any statistical evidence uh, to back my claim, just anecdotally, I feel that it was my mother's generation which had better percentage of working women because now I see all these brilliantly educated women sitting back at home to take care of kids and parents. Could you talk about a little bit about the economy of the entire...
1: Yeah, you know, Shobna. so we know, right, India dramatically changed with the economic reforms of the 90s, right? Dr. Manmohan Singh's budget, Kivinar uh, rao's government, those sets of reforms, particularly around telecom, opening up foreign investment. India just boomed uh, in terms of the economy. I mean, we grew, we grew in a certain way and then we can debate the quality of that growth, but we grew, right? And, and I think Indian society was no longer the same after that period. And all the women I was encountering, they were all what I call children of liberalization. You know, I I, I think it's a phrase maybe others have used as well. They were all born very young in the 1980s and they came into education and into their own in the post-1990s India, right? So first generation to have access to this new India with new opportunities, household incomes grew, as you can see in the book, Shovana. so many of the women, even you know, women in the villages, all the way up to women living in Jorbak, all their household incomes have grown, right? Because of sudden opportunities, be it in construction, real estate, certain kinds of jobs in the media opening up, just the whole space, right? And what is fascinating, exactly as you're hinting at, Shobhna, is that while the, while the economy grew, I argue that India has only liberalized for its men. And we tend to really like pat ourselves on the back saying, oh, well, look at those reforms and the impacts were so significant. Sure, they were significant. But if you look at the top 10 fastest growing sectors, and I mentioned this in the book, only less than 19% of jobs in those sectors have are for women. So the economy has grown for men. Uh, India has liberalized for its men. And yet the women in the same country... I write this, they occupy a different planet where even the smallest freedom, like wanting to watch an actor, is so difficult. And so that's why I made that choice because one, it was just, it just was happenstance that all the women I was interacting with happened to be children of liberalization. Uh, but then their stories, and particularly what was happening to them in their professional lives, was so powerful an illustration of what we know statistically has happened, which is as India has grown, unlike other countries, women's employment and access to assets has just dramatically dropped. And there are various reasons that that's happening. And I summarize them in the book. And one of the things that's very worrying is that we see as incomes grow, it seems Indian households, particularly upper caste households, uh, but because of, you know, this phrase that's called Sanskritization by, by sociologists, you also see this in sort of, you know, OBC families, uh, that there is this aspiration to mimic and mirror upper caste Brahminical norms, where if the household makes enough money, women the expectation is that women will stay at home. So oddly, in fact, in India, unlike other countries that have grown, as household incomes increase, women actually step back. And I think the other reason this is happening is because while the economy has grown, investments in the care economy are abysmal. We, We, of course, have expanded our schooling, we've expanded our nutrition programs, uh, we have childcare centers, but I would argue, and many others who study this very closely would argue, the quality of the ex- that expenditure still stagnates. Women are not supported uh, in their care work. The domestic infrastructure is still very weak. And men are yet to step into the kitchen. You know, we are in the bottom five when it comes to men helping in housework. And so, finally, while the economy has grown and on the surface, we seem like, you know, there are all these attributes of modernity. The real crux of modernity, which is, you know, gender equality, be it within the home, in the economy, um, in allowing women to actuate on their ambitions, all of that is extremely suppressed. So that's actually why I wanted to tell the story of post-liberalization India. And of course, we see that as the economy has moved forward and then, you know, in the growth slump post-demonetization, women are just losing jobs. And you see this even during the pandemic. Uh, Most men who lost jobs during the lockdowns, CMIE data tells us, and I mentioned this in the book, uh, have come back to employment, even if the quality of the employment has become more precarious. But five out of 10 working women are yet to return. Um, And this is really becoming alarming because it's almost like the edifice of our economy is male. So I wanted to tell that story. You
0: know, one thing I wanted to understand... this book resonates with all women. Um, but I believe it is the men who should read it. Like it should be a compulsory reading for them. Now, I want to know from you, uh, do your male readers react differently from the female readers? And what was the craziest reaction you've had so far?
1: Oh gosh, shobhna I, I feel like I should write a book about men reading this book. <laughs> so it's been, it's been quite interesting. So it's ranged from immediate, oh, this is such a silly book right? Why would anyone want to know about what women have to say about a man, right? This complete dismissal of female pleasure, female joy, female voices, you know, the chick litification, right, of of anything that has to do with women's desires and exploring women's experiences. And, you know, recently someone uh, put up this really mean, you know, I check all the Insta reviews, I see everything. Uh, and I saw someone who put up something really mean, basically saying, well, if you're interested in learning about the trials and tribulations of women or Shah Rukh Khan, you should read this book. But I don't think anyone who's blurbed the book has read it, actually. And I was really stunned. You know, I sent it to someone, actually, who had blurbed the book. And they said, this is just, it's so sexist. It's so obvious, right? Like, it's almost as if, you know, you don't want to engage with what women have to say, what they feel. So that's one extreme. But then there's the other extreme where I've had a lot of men really, I think it's made them very reflective, particularly those who are fathers of daughters. Um, I've had a lot of very heartwarming emails and messages from them saying that, you know, this has really pushed them to think very carefully about the kind of father they want to be and how they want to support their daughters. So it's been a mixed bag, but I will say one thing, Shobhana, and I know this for a fact, which is that, you know, if it was, if it was called Desperately Seeking Sachin, right? And it were about cricket and men talking about themselves to cricket. Because there are certain things that are seen more seriously, right? Like that are te- typically, you know, masculine pursuits. Uh, There, I think it would be different. But because this is about women's pleasure and, a, and an icon who is very female in the way he has been, uh, you know, I can see the skepticism. Uh, but I'm also very happy to report that I do know that men do then pick it up and then they do sort of update their views. But yeah, it's been it's been interesting just seeing the general reaction. But I do think that there's an instinct to dismiss, which I think is true for anyone you know who's writing about women's voices um, in on a on a technical issue, but in a more accessible
0: way. And finally, you know, I, although I have like a million other questions, but we have a time limit, and uh, I can't let you go without asking: Have you ever met Shahrukh Khan? Has he read the book and perhaps has he sent you notes or something?
1: (laughs) No, you know, Shobhana, in fact, I have to say uh, everyone involved in the book has read the book other than him. Uh, I know that it's with his team because my publishers have sent it to him. And, you know, one or two messages I have exchanged with people in his team. Um, So inshallah, he will read it. I really hope he does. Um, I'm looking forward to that piece of feedback as and when it comes. It hasn't come yet. And uh, the one thing I will say, though, is that uh, I'm just very grateful that his icon exists because I don't think the, the depth of conversations and the way I was able to explore women's experiences, I don't think it would have happened had I followed a very traditional social science path. I think it was because I went through the indirect route of fandom and his icon. It really allowed women to open up. So I'm very grateful for that. And I really hope he reads it just to see. What his icon allows, you know, the stories his icon allows women to tell about themselves. Um, I, I think that'll be powerful. But fingers crossed and, and waiting. Uh, there's a very embarrassing story of me trying to get an autograph of his, which is in the book. So I'd encourage those to just read uh that story in there. But no, I've not met him. Um, and I really hope that the book does reach his hands soon.
0: Also, tell me a little bit about the title. Uh, you've been holding on to the title for the
1: last 15 years, no? Yes. Uh, Shobna. in fact, right in 2006, when I had emerged from uh, a slum in Ahmedabad, where I met the first set of Shah Rukh fans from, you know, somewhat, you know, these were women who were unionizing. Um, and they were really bored with my traditional social science questions. So they said, can we take a break? So we started talking about the few things we had in common. So we talked about Bollywood. Then suddenly Shah Rukh came up because I'd asked them about their favorite actor. And suddenly, you know, Shobhana, the the energy just changed so much. And there was such exhilaration, like everybody wanted to talk about, oh, let me tell you about Shah Rukh and let me tell you what I think. And there was this desperation to just be able to watch a full length film of his, which was really hard to do. If you read the book, you know how difficult it was for these women to just sit together, have the electricity, the money and the screen to just watch a full length film. And there was a desperation in that right to seek your joy to smile to laugh to want to have fun and they were all seeking him but I realized it was not just seeking him to want to watch a film of his but to just indulge themselves and so that's why right then you know I'd always loved Desperately Seeking Susan the title more than the movie and I just knew that right then when I'd emerged out that if I were to write this it would be called Desperately Seeking Shah Rukh, because there was this sort of texture of of just sheer desperation to just want to claim your own fun and claim your own pleasure and to be able to have markets and money and spaces that allowed you to do that. And so that's why right from 2006, I knew that it was going to be called as Seeking Thank you
0: so much, Rayana. I still have like plenty of questions, but I guess this is it for us here at on Books at the Haley
1: Thank you so much, Shobna. It was such a pleasure. We'll speak soon.
0: Thank you for listening to The Hindu on Books. You can now find The Hindu's podcasts such as In Focus and Parlay on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other major platforms. Write to us with comments and feedback at Socmed4, S-O-C-M-E-D4 at the rate thehindu.co.in.